Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shalom, Hag Sameach. I want to welcome you all to our Yom Kippur Day of Atonement High, High Holy Day service. For Yom Kippur Day, I want to welcome everyone watching as well uh, on YouTube and our, our YouTube live uh, live stream channel. And uh, in keeping with these the, this day's theme uh, of atonement uh, and Yeshua the Messiah being our once and for all Yom Kippur atonement, uh, who alone forgives our sins as we trust in Him, I want to talk today on the theme of forgiveness. And I'd like us to explore this topic by looking at the life of Yosef of Joseph, and especially in Genesis chapter 45, where Joseph forgives his brothers for selling him into slavery. Indeed, outside of the death and resurrection of Yeshua himself, I believe Genesis 45 is the most beautiful picture of forgiveness, the most complete and profound picture of forgiveness in the entire scriptures. Go through the whole Bible You'll be hard-pressed to find a more profound expression of forgiveness than what you have here in Genesis 45, uh, with Joseph forgiving his brothers. And this issue of forgiveness cuts across every aspect of who we are uh, and how we live as Messianic believers. Every day, this impacts your life. Every day. Perhaps more than any other characteristic of grace or experience that you have as a believer, this theme of forgiveness is key. And this topic is even more significant because of how frequently you interact with this issue and because how it impacts the way you view God, the way you view yourself, and the way you view and interact with others. So with all this in mind, let's look together at Genesis 45. But first, uh, by way of background, let's look at Joseph's life quickly. Joseph, he's he's been sold into slavery by his brothers. At first, of course, we know they were going to kill him, uh, but later decided to sell him into slavery. And this desire to kill him was not just some idle threat. Simeon and Levi had earlier wiped out an entire village of Shechem, slaughtered them all with a sword. So these were mass murderers. You know, it's one thing for your brother to be mad at you and say, I kill you. (laughs) It's another thing when your brother happens to be a mass murderer. (laughs) They were literally going to kill Joseph, but they did not. Instead, they sold him into slavery. You know the story. Uh, uh, And also, you know your family is really messed up when being sold into slavery is the good result. (laughs) He ends up in Potiphar's house, captain of the guard in Egypt. You know, and sometimes we, we tend to reduce these Bible stories to over an oversimplistic understanding uh, that if you do good, if you are faithful, then God will reward you. Oh, really? Joseph was faithful to his father, and his brother Solomon into slavery. Joseph was faithful to Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife first tries to seduce him, and then when he refuses, she lies about him. And Potiphar throws him into prison for years. He's faithful in prison. He interprets dreams, including the dream of the king's cupbearer, who who promises to remember him, put a good word in for him. But it's two more years before Joseph is actually remembered and freed. 
But when Pharaoh has dreams that nobody can interpret, now the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And now Joseph finally ends up in Pharaoh's court. And this takes us all the way up to Genesis 41. And because we understand stories and story arcs, uh, we look at Joseph being elevated to the prime minister of Egypt uh, in Genesis 41, and we think, aha, here it is. This is the climax of the story. This is the big payoff. But nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, on the overhead here, uh, if you read Genesis 41 carefully, when Joseph rises before Pharaoh, what you'll find is every detail in the relationship between Joseph and Pharaoh is really a perversion of what's supposed to exist between Joseph and his father Jacob. And it's not good. Joseph is over, over Pharaoh's house, but he's supposed to be over Jacob's house. He's in the land of Egypt. He's supposed to be in the land of promise. Egypt becomes synonymous with enslavement of God's people in sin. A, a place from which we need to be delivered. And that's where he is. That's not the payoff. He's clothed. He was clothed in the robe of his father. His father gave him. Now he's clothed in the robe that Pharaoh gives him. Uh, he tells his brothers about his dream that one day they're going to bow down to him. His brothers want to kill him for it. And now Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And Pharaoh tells the Egyptians all to bow down to Joseph. And they do it gladly. Earlier in Genesis, uh, we saw Abraham tell his servant, put your hand under my thigh, his servant Eliezer, and swear you'll find a, a wife for my son Isaac, uh, but, but not among the pagans. Now, what does Pharaoh give Joseph? A pagan wife. He also gives him a pagan name. Uh, and, uh, names are significant. Why is it when Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had their names changed to pagan names, we want to cry? But Joseph has his, his name changed to a pagan name, and, and we think nothing of it. Genesis 41, and Joseph uh, be, being elevated to prime minister is not the moral of the story. The moral of the story of Joseph is not just hang in there, serve the Lord, everything's going to be fine. The moral isn't hang in there, trust God, serve God, uh, and one day you'll serve a pagan who thinks he's God. <laughs> you'll be away from the covenant community, far away from the people of God. You'll have a pagan identity, a pagan wife, a pagan name, and live in a pagan land. And, you, and now you say, thank you, Lord, for fulfilling my destiny? I don't think so. I don't think that's the intended message of the teaching of the story of Joseph. So if chapter 41 is not the payoff, is not the climax, is not the high point of the story, where is it? I submit to you it's chapter 45. When Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and forgives them. Joseph has tested his brothers. He sent them away. They finally come back with Benjamin. He tests them again. He's going to keep Benjamin on the overhead. This is where Judah the forerunner to Messiah, Yeshua. Judah offers himself as the substitute to pay the price so that Benjamin can, can, can go back to his father who loves him. A beautiful Torah picture, if you will, uh, of redemption and the atonement that we have in Yeshua, our Yom Kippur scapegoat. For it's Yeshua, our Messiah, who, who offers himself so that his father can lavish his love on the brethren that he loves. Judah is a picture of Messiah. 
And at this point, Joseph can't take it anymore. He's overwhelmed by Judah's self-sacrificial love for his brother Benjamin. And we pick it up now in Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph couldn't control himself before all those who stood before him. And he cried, have everybody go out for me. So there was no man there when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. The household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers, they couldn't even answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Joseph is overwhelmed. He identifies himself to his brothers. They don't know what to think. All they know is this is the most powerful man in all of Egypt who has accused them of stealing. They, they, they know that this man has their lives in his hands. But he's not going to harm them. He's, he's, he's just going to keep Benjamin, their father's favorite, in prison. And now he says, guys, it's me. It's your long-lost brother, Joseph. But far from being relieved, this just makes the brothers even more terrified. Because if he's just some Egyptian guy, all he has against them is that they allegedly took some, uh, some silver cup and, and some grain. But if he's Joseph, he's got a lot more against them. <laughs> and they're speechless. speechless. And then the other shoe drops. Look at verse 4. Genesis 45, verse 4. Uh, then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they come closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why? For God set me before you to preserve life. Joseph is giving us here a glimpse of his theology. Verse 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there's still five years left to go. Well, there's going to be neither plowing nor harvesting. God set me before you to preserve you for a remnant on the earth, to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. And he's made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up. Go to my father. Say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you'll be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There are also provide for you. Therefore, there are still five years left of the famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have won't become impoverished. Behold, your eyes see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it's my mouth that's speaking to you. Now, you must tell my father of all the splendor in Egypt and all that you've seen. You must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked to him. Joseph's merciful reaction is amazing, given everything his brothers had done to him. They had done the unthinkable to him, and yet he extends forgiveness. As I said, I believe outside of the cross, this is the most beautiful picture of forgiveness that we have in the entire scriptures. So let's first define forgiveness uh, on the overhead. Here's a classic definition. This one comes from uh, John Calvin. He says, first, what is forgiveness but a gift of mere liberality? 
A creditor is not said to forgive when he declares by granting a discharge that the money uh, has been paid to him. But when without any payment, through a voluntary kindness, he expunges the debt, that's forgiveness. Forgiveness is expunging, it's canceling the debt. Forgiveness means you don't have to pay. So let's say, for example, you break my computer. And I say, it's okay, I forgive you, just give me another two grand and we're good. I have not forgiven. (laughs) Why? Because I'm making you pay. I have not canceled the debt. I didn't forgive. If I say, I forgive you in this context, that's actually a wrong use of the term. Because I'm still making you pay. Now, usually when we say, I forgive you, what we're really saying is, I'm not going to blow up at you. That's typically all we really mean. Uh, I'm not going to blow up at you. Uh, I'm not going to punch you. (laughs) I may want to, but at least right now I'm not going to. (laughs) However, I am going to still punish you in various ways. Now, what does it look like in a relationship to make someone pay? What does it mean relationally not to forgive? Well, for starters, I'm going to withhold from you my time and my attention. I forgive you, yeah, but I don't want you around me anymore. I forgive you, I'm just not speaking to you. You know, In a husband-wife situation, I forgive you, but I'm going to withhold my affection. That's not forgiveness. That's the opposite of forgiveness. You're being punitive. You're making them pay. That means you're not forgiving. Another example. Depriving a parent of the honor and respect that they're their due. I forgive you, Dad, but I'm not going to honor you or respect you. That's not forgiveness. Depriving a child of their inheritance. Here's an example of a parent refusing to forgive their son or daughter. Oh, they say they forgive them, but they punish them later on. Why? Because I've got something you need or something you expect. Sorry, I'm not giving it to you. You're, you're not going to get it. That's punishment. That's not forgiveness. Here's another example. Uh, refusing to acknowledge someone's accomplishments or achievements or, or special occasions in someone's life. My mom was mean to me. My mom wasn't good. a good mom. I'm going to show her. I will not send her a card or call her on her birthday. Well, then you have not forgiven. My parents weren't good, were not good parents. I was not going to throw for them a 50th anniversary party. This fellow employee years ago did me wrong. There's no way I'm showing up to his retirement party. I'm going to make you pay. I'm not going to send my dad pictures of his grandkids. I'm going to make him pay. Or... I'm I'm not going to come and see you. I'm making you pay. I'm not going to call or text or email or message you. I'm making you pay. These are all examples of, of unforgiveness. I refuse to discharge the debt that I have against you. You owe me for what you did to me, and therefore I'm going to make you pay. Of course I'm a believer, and therefore, of course, I say I forgive you. But it's not true biblical Forgiveness. There's always strings attached. Because I'm going to still make you pay. And that's the essence of unforgiveness. Here's another example. Uh, rejecting gifts or cards. Hey, you got a card from your mom. Throw it out. <laughs> hey, you just got a Hanukkah present in the mail from your sister. 
She's probably just feeling guilty. Uh, I'm not going to even open it. Return to sender. This is what unforgiveness looks like in your everyday life. Another example. Rejoicing in the suffering of somebody else. You did me wrong. Oh, I heard you have cancer now. Well, that's what you get. That's God's punishment for you. Now, not only is that unforgiveness, that's a form of calling out a curse on someone, uh, hoping for bad things to happen to someone. You're toying with the dark side. It's what I call messianic voodoo. You're sticking pins in a doll in your mind, hoping bad things will happen to this person who's wronged you. And secretly rejoicing when it does. That's unforgiveness. That's a spirit of bitterness uh, and a grudge that will take root and defile you. That's opening the door to the enemy, the evil one, to get a foothold in your life. And as you can see, uh, you're not forgiving. There's a number of things going on here when you're not forgiving. It's on the overhead. Number one, when you're not forgiving, you're being disobedient because you're commanded to forgive. Look at Ephesians 4.31. That all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Just as God and Messiah has forgiven you. So first you're being disobedient to the Lord. Refusing to forgive someone is sin. It's sinning against God. Messiah Yeshua forgave you your huge debt. And you won't forgive your brother or your sister their tiny debt. You feel that your unforgiveness, it's somehow justified. Because you're just responding to what they did to you. But you're sinning against the Lord. And you're making a mockery of his shed blood on the tree. That purchased your forgiveness. You're like a child saying, well, he hit me first. Number two. When you're not forgiving a fellow believer, you're in essence saying to God, listen, God, I know Yeshua died on the cross for what that brother did to me. And that may be enough to satisfy you, Lord, but I require more. The death of Yeshua, the Messiah, isn't enough. I demand more from this brother who did me wrong before I'm willing to forgive him. Yeshua's shed blood alone cannot pay for this. His death and resurrection wasn't enough to cover this. They need your death on the cross, Lord, plus the silent treatment from me. That's what you're saying. Number three on the overhead. What about forgiving a non-believer, a non-Yeshua follower? Unbelievers who reject Messiah's Yom Kippur atonement... They will ultimately pay eternally for their sin. They'll have nothing to cover them from the wrath of God. For their sin and rebellion. For their self-centeredness and pride. For their hatred and jealousy. For their lust and greed. uh, Their lying, their judgmentalism, their unbelief, their unforgiveness, their idolatry. So by you refusing to forgive an unbeliever, you're saying, Lord... Your wrath is not enough. They don't deserve only eternity in hell. They deserve eternity in hell plus me not taking their phone calls. Now and only now will the scales really be balanced. Because I now get my pound of flesh. 
this is the wrong answer. But this is what many of us unconsciously are saying. And of course, the one who's really paying is you and the overhead. It's been said that holding on to unforgiveness is like uh, against another person is like you drinking poison and hoping they die. <laughs> and you allow the bitterness uh, to stir uh, up uh, and to fester. But no, that's not what Joseph did. Second, on the overhead, I want you to understand it's not just what, uh, what forgiveness is, but what comes from forgiveness. Uh, because forgiveness uh, is, is uh, inextricably, inexorably linked to redemption. So here we have Joseph offering his forgiveness. But notice what he actually says. He says, God sent me here to Egypt for a purpose. And the purpose was redemption. The purpose was preserving life. Uh, and it's not just preserving any life, by the way, but particularly about preserving Judah's life. Because the whole story of the book of Genesis is about preservation of the promised seed. Man falls in Genesis 3. The first announcement of the gospel, it's also in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15, God tells the servant, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He'll bruise your heel. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. That's the announcement that there is one coming, the seed of the woman, who'll crush the head of the snake. In the very next chapter, what do we see? Chapter 4 of Genesis, the first murder. Uh, the seed of the serpent, Cain, kills the seed of the woman, Abel. And at the end of the chapter, there's an announcement of another seed, Seth. Next chapter, Genesis 5, we've got the ten generations listed, uh, from Adam to Noah, uh, through the godly seed of Seth. The seed is being preserved. The whole earth is wiped out in the flood, but Noah and his sons and their wives escape in the ark. The seed is preserved. Noah's son Shem is now identified as the promised seed. Eventually, Terah is identified as the promised seed from Shem, Terah. And then the promise passes to his son, Abraham. And the Lord promises Abraham that he's going to have a son. Uh, Abraham tries to force matters, goes into Hagar, has Ishmael, not the promised son. The promised seed is Isaac, Yitzhak, uh, not Ishmael. Isaac, he has twins. Well, who's the promised seed? Is it the firstborn, Esau? No, it's the secondborn, Yitzhak, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Who's the promised seed? Is it the one he loves the most, Joseph? No, it's actually the last son of the wife he despises, Leah, the one he never wanted to marry. Judah is the promised seed. Joseph was hated, sold, enslaved, imprisoned, abandoned, estranged from his brothers for 20 years. But Joseph realizes that God allowed all this to happen so that his family, including Judah, the promised seed, could live. And now, in a powerful, Messiah-like act of self-sacrifice and love, Judah agrees to be imprisoned so that Benjamin could be freed. And this leads to Joseph finally revealing himself to his brothers and providing for all of them. Judah lives, and one day he'll have a son named David, uh, who one day will have a son named Yeshua. Remember, in the Bible, in Hebrew, the word son also can mean descendant. And this Yeshua, the Messiah, he'll redeem God's people through his death and resurrection. And the overhead. And it's because Joseph looked at his circumstances this way, from God's point of view, seeing the big picture, because of this, he was able to forgive his brothers. 
This is uh, an example, again, of Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Messiah forgave you. Forgiveness is rooted in redemption. The ability to forgive is rooted in redemption. Romans 12.19. Never take your own vengeance, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. As it's written, vengeance is mine. I will pay, saith the Lord. God is the one who meets out ultimate justice. Not me. Not you. And the overhead. And therefore, I have the ability to forgive because I understand that your sin against me is ultimately not against me. It's against God. And he's the one you have to deal with, not me. Who do I think I am that I need to be avenged? And how hypocritical it is that I look at my own sin so lightly uh, and your sin so critically. Now, because forgiveness it is connected uh, to redemption, this is where we have problems. Because the core of our redemption is Yeshua, uh, in Yeshua is tied up in forgiveness. If I don't understand forgiveness, therefore, it's going to lead to a lot of problems in my life. So first, we have the example of, of the radical hypocrite. The radical hypocrite is where you, st- you stub his toe uh, and you're dead to them. You're dead to him. Uh, he, he, runs, he, runs you, he runs over you. Uh, your sin is huge to him. Everybody else's sin is always monumental to them. And, of course, the things that they do are always minuscule. Minuscule. <laughs> That's the first person. The one with the log in his own eye. Then there's the second person. This person won't forgive. This person holds on to a grudge. Always feels like there needs to be more punishment so the scales can finally be set right. So what do they think God is thinking every time they sin? According to this logic, the scales have to be set right again. And so they never feel secure in their relationship with God because of their own inability to forgive. And they then project this inability to forgive upon their heavenly father. Uh, always doubting if they're really loved. Because unconsciously, they're saying the blood of Messiah is not enough to achieve forgiveness. The perpetrator also needs to grovel and apologize and make amends to you and better never do it again. It's a salvation by faith plus works. That's the unconscious theology behind the refusal to forgive. And the sad truth is that we often do do it again, over and over again, uh, because we're sinful human beings. That's why Yeshua said, forgive your brother not just seven times, but 70 times seven, which is an an Hebraic way of saying, forgive without limit. So here are some myths uh, that hang us up, which the story of Joseph obliterates uh, on the overhead. Myth number one, you can only forgive someone if they ask for forgiveness. Did Joseph's brothers ask for forgiveness before he forgave them? No. For the some of you in this room who are still controlled by someone else, by, by, controlled by someone, and, and, and in your unforgiveness, and in some cases, uh, you're still controlled by them. In some cases, they're not even alive anymore. And you're still controlled by, uh, in your unforgiveness, of what they did to you years ago. In fact, they could have even been dead for a long time. And you still won't forgive them. And of course, they can't ask for forgiveness anymore, which means you'll never forgive them. 
if asking for forgiveness is a prerequisite. So you just keep drinking the poison, thinking it's hurting them somehow. I know a guy whose kids loved our junior Shabbat classes. They wanted to come to Shabbat services. Uh, his wife came to the shul. He didn't come. Uh, but when his kids asked to go, the father said, no. He said, my father made me go to shul, and I hated it. So, uh, so I'm never going to let my kids attend shul. <laughs> Why? This is my way of getting back at my father. My father wanted his son and his grandsons to attend shul, but they're not. So I'm winning. <laughs> By the way, his father was long dead. And because of his son's bitterness and unforgiveness, his father still was winning. His father was still controlling him, even from the grave. The other person asking for forgiveness has nothing to do with your obligation to forgive. Joseph's brothers didn't even know he was Joseph, and he forgave them. They didn't ask for anything, but he chose not to punish them. On the cross, did Yeshua say, forgive them, Lord, because they've asked for forgiveness? No, what did he say? Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. This obliterates the myth that you only forgive if someone asks for your forgiveness and they repent. This is similar to the concern of, what if I die with a sin that's unconfessed? It's kind of a similar concept. Uh, you know, what if I die with a sin that was unconfessed that I didn't ask for forgiveness for? You know, that's almost humorous. That you think you're capable of confessing all your sins. Which assumes you're capable of knowing all your sins. As you grow in Messiah, you learn more and more about your own sinfulness. That in the past, things you never even saw in your life. Stuff you just overlooked. But now the Holy Spirit has convicted you that it's sinful. And guess what? The more you grow in Messiah, the more you see your sin and the blackness of your own heart. Because the more you're now sensitive to God's Spirit. So no one dies with all their sins confessed. No. And if you think you actually have, then you're guilty of the sin of pride, <laughs> which you didn't confess. <laughs> As the old hymn goes on the overhead, Yeshua paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners who plunge beneath its flood lose all their guilty stains. Yeshua, our Yom Kippur atonement, cleanses you from your sin. People don't need to ask you. You need to forgive them. If forgiveness means I give up my right to punish you, and if and I, I believe I only forgive when someone asks me to forgive them, then that implies I'm, obli I'm obligated to punish you uh, if you don't ask for forgiveness. How is that working out? Number two, myth number two on the overhead. Forgiveness requires forgetting. Another myth. Look at Genesis 45, verse 4. Joseph says, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph had not forgotten in the least what they did. And yet he forgives them. Forgiveness does not require forgetting. Indeed, we as human beings, we're not created to forget. When you start forgetting, that means something's wrong with you. <laughs> we see this today in some politicians, right? <laughs> if you can't remember things... You need to see a doctor. <laughs> You've got, we call it amnesia or, or Alzheimer's or, or dementia. Human beings are not made to forget. 
The whole Bible, by the way, when the Bible says that God remembers your sins no more, again, that's a Hebraic figure of speech or metaphor that's saying God's not going to hold that sin against you. That's what it means. It doesn't mean God says, oh, now, what is, what is it that David did last Saturday at 10 p.m.? I can't seem to remember. No, that's not what God's saying. <laughs> God is omniscient. He knows all. Likewise, when the Lord says that he remembers his people Israel down in Egypt, it doesn't mean all of a sudden he realizes, hey, they're in slavery. Wow. No, again, this is a Hebraic euphemism that God's now about to act. He's now about to act. He remembers his people, meaning I'm now about to act. The Lord does not forget. And we're not expected to forget. But the beauty of forgiveness, seen right here in Genesis 45, Joseph says, I remember what you did, and nonetheless, I forgive you. I remember what you did to me, but I'm, I'm not going to bring, but nonetheless, I'm going to bring you now into the choicest land. I remember what you did, but yet I want you near me. Look at verse 10, Genesis 45, verse 10. You'll live in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Despite what his brothers had done to him, Joseph embraces them. Uh, he provides for them. He wants to be near them. He wants them near him. That's forgiveness. Joseph says to them, I'm here to preserve life for you. I want you near me. Is that not what we have in Messiah, Yeshua? We sin. We despise Yeshua. We reject him. But on the cross, he dies for our sin. John 14, 3, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. He's saying, I want you to be with me, near me. Yeshua says, there's a good land, and you'll be there with me. That's what we have in Messiah. Myth number three on the overhead. Forgiveness must always result in restoration. No, there is a difference between forgiveness and then being able to trust somebody again and resume a personal relationship. Therefore, there's a difference between forgiveness and restoration. I can forgive you, uh, and you don't, you don't even have to know about it. But we can't reconcile unless there's a two-way street. And this is where a lot of us get hung up. There's a difference between the two. I can forgive you even when reconciliation is not possible. You can be a wretch, but I can forgive you. And that means three things on the overhead. Uh, number one, it means I'm not going to punish you. Number two, I'm not going to keep replaying all the anger tapes in my mind uh, of how you did me wrong. Number three, I'm not going to root for your downfall. Uh, I'm not going to secretly cheer when bad things happen to you. So I can forgive and let it go. But reconciliation, that's another whole issue. Uh, because that takes work. It takes both parties cooperating, both parties wanting it. One obvious example is in marriage, uh, where an infidelity has occurred. There can be forgiveness, but reconciliation uh, and rebuilding trust, that's going to take time and a lot of work. And in the case of, of spouse abuse, uh, it can go both ways. Let's say the husband beats his wife, which is the more common way. His wife may forgive him, but sometimes reconciliation is impossible. And this is a huge issue, and therefore you need to know the difference between forgiveness and restoring a relationship. Far too often, you know, a woman has been molested, let's say uh, by a family member, uh, and she feels guilty because she says, well, the Bible says I have to forgive, uh, which must mean uh, that, that I must forget, uh, I must reconcile, I must restore the relationship, uh, I must let this person back into my life, uh, let them around my kids. 
No. That's wrong. That's not what the Bible says. And that's not what forgiveness is. Again, forgiveness means three things on the overhead. Number one, you're not going to directly retaliate. Number two, you're not going to indirectly retaliate by running them down and bad-mouthing them to other people. And number three, inside your heart, when you're tempted to put little pins inside of them, when you're tempted to replay all those anger tapes and nurse angry thoughts, you resist and you say no. That's forgiveness. It does not necessarily imply reconciliation. Unforgiveness is, my dad was mean to me growing up, so I won't call him on his birthday. I won't, send him, I won't even send him pictures of his grandkids. You can forgive and show honor and respect, but it doesn't mean you, you shouldn't be careful. Myth number four in the overhead. Forgiveness automatically means everything is, is, is better. No, it doesn't. <laughs> That's why there's an emphasis on 70 times 7. If forgiveness made everything better, you wouldn't need to keep forgiving over and over again, 70 times 7. Why doesn't forgiveness automatically make everything better? Because we're sinners. And we're always sinning against each other. Which means we always need to be constantly forgiving one another. When we live in relationship with one another... Uh, uh, whether at home or at shul, we need to be constantly forgiving. And if you don't, you will constantly become embittered. And the root of bitterness will grow up in your soul. And it will defile you. There's some of you here in this room right now, some of you in the sound of my voice on YouTube, and your marriage is not characterized by forgiveness, which means it's characterized by bitterness. And unforgiveness. But some of you whose relationship with your siblings is not characterized by forgiveness. Which means it's characterized by resentment and bitterness. Your relationship with your parents. Not characterized by forgiveness. Means it's, which means it's characterized by unforgiveness and bitterness. Your relationship with people here in the shul. Is either characterized by ongoing grace and forgiveness. Or by ongoing bitterness and resentment. And a critical spirit. It's one or the other on the overhead. One of these, forgiveness, is a picture of the redemption you have in Yeshua. And it's glorious. The other of these, unforgiveness, makes a mockery of what Yeshua did on the cross. I remember vividly, many, many years ago, my first daughter Rachel was born. Elizabeth had a C-section, and she was out cold. <laughs> so I was actually the first to hold Rachel. I was right there in the operating room. I actually saw her being born. The first thing I said to the doctors is, please clean her up. <laughs> and as I held her, I started to weep. And a strange feeling came over me, uh, the first time becoming a father. I had a strange feeling because I had been sort of abandoned by my, by my father in the past. Uh, my mother and father got divorced when I was 12. And just when I needed my father the most, you know, entering into my teen years, he was gone. Now, thank God I still saw my father. He wasn't, it was, but it wasn't the same as him living together with me in, the, in, the, in our home. And as I held Rachel in that operating room, I had this overwhelming sense, there's nothing in the world that could ever make me leave her. <laughs> and I had a flashback to my dad leaving me. I said to myself, if he ever felt what I feel right now about Rachel, how could he have ever done that? 
well, I did see my dad, thank God. And I did have actually a good relationship with him. And then six, year, six years later, when I turned eight, was 18, uh, he died. And I was actually the last person to ever speak to him. He called me up to wish me happy birthday. He hung up the phone, had a heart attack, and died. But I was so grateful for that time I got to spend with him. And now I feel, and I feel sorry and sorrow for those who don't reconcile with an estranged parent. There are so many who say, I had the opportunity to reconcile with my mom or with my dad, and I didn't. I wanted to make them pay. I was mad at them, so I didn't take their calls. I was mad at her, so I didn't go see her. I didn't acknowledge birthdays. I didn't send them pictures of the grandkids. And now he's gone. And I can't. Now she's dead. It's too late. There are some of you who can relate to this. And you think the chance to forgive is gone. But I assure you it's not. Because right here, right now, today, you can do that. You can seek forgiveness with a loved one. You can ask for forgiveness. You can extend forgiveness. Right here, right now, you can look at the cross of Messiah and what he's done to forgive you and turn that outward to your relationship with others, even people who are long gone. And you can do that today on this Yom Kippur, this Day of Atonement. Wife, husband, you can do that today. Parent, child, you can do this today. Because of what Yeshua has done for you. Because of the unforgiveness that you've received, you can do that today. Brothers and sisters at Chaim, you can do that today on this day of Yom Kippur. You can do that with your fellow Shua members. Yeshua has made that a reality for you. It's the only reality that makes any sense. Holding on to forgiveness or bitterness makes no sense. Especially for those of us who are redeemed by the blood of Messiah, our Yom Kippur atonement. That's not who you are in Messiah Yeshua, to hold on to unforgiveness. But what Yeshua has made real to you is the opportunity to say, because of what he's done for me, forgiveness is possible. Both to be forgiven and to forgive others. My prayer for you is, is that's what you will do today on this Day of Atonement. To ask forgiveness from those who you have wronged, for those whom you have offended, and to actively seek out those who have ought against you, and to forgive them, and to let it go. So I urge you today to embrace the reality of this glorious gospel. Not, just in, not only in saving you from the wrath of God, but also in delivering you from this poisonous venom of unforgiveness. Let's do that today. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Father, Father, we thank you for this day of atonement and the forgiveness we have in Yeshua, our Yom Kippur sin and guilt offering, who's by his blood, by your blood, Yeshua, forgives our sins. You tell us in your word to forgive those who have who've trespassed, who sin against us. Uh, and then you tell us that if we don't forgive others their sins, you won't forgive us our sins. You, Lord Yeshua, have forgiven us our many sins. 
We hereby forgive uh, my brother and my sister their relatively few sins. And Lord, if we know that someone has ought against me, uh, I commit today, Lord, to leave my gift at the altar. And the first go and reconcile with my brother, with my sister. Lord, you say forgiveness is canceling the debt. Lord, we hereby cancel the debt of those who've wronged us. We give up the right to retaliate and to pay them back. We're not going to withhold our love and affection and time and attention as a means of retaliation and revenge. We release all bitterness, Lord, right now, and grudges and animosity and resentment. And we commit instead, Lord, to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving them, those who've wronged me, just as you, Messiah Yeshua, have forgiven me. Lord, for all those who've wronged me, I forgive them. And therefore, uh, I commit not to try to punish them or to make them pay, not to replay all these anger tapes in my mind, not to root for or, or rejoice in their downfall, not to badmouth them to others, but instead to pray for their blessing. Lord, forgive me as I forgive others. And I pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen.